0: He's, he's the father of five, husband of one. Praise God for that. He's a resident scholar of the American Vision and is a regular contributor to AmericanVision.org. Some of you guys might have read his books. Uh, a few of them that I'm going to mention is uh, Restoring America, One Country at a Time. One county at a time. I went to public school, so I, <laughs> I haven't read that book yet. God Versus Socialism and my personal favorite, What Would Jesus Drink? It's okay to laugh at that one, too. It's a book. There there are resources available. So after this, you guys, please feel free to to peruse around and see that. But if you guys can, please welcome Dr. Joel McDermott. Normally, I preach like Jeff. But uh, tonight I'm going to do something a little different. Uh, Normally at a conference, I try to take the opportunity to do something new, something fresh, something people haven't heard before, Uh, you know, not necessarily new content, but maybe. Uh, But tonight, in light of the occasion for this conference, which was really the debate, we built a conference around the debate, uh, I decided to do something a little bit different. Now, it's not my normal character to get up here and read a lot to you, but I'm going to do that tonight. I promise I'll keep you awake doing it. But uh, I think it's important for what uh, mission we, I want to accomplish to kind of put this uh, little problem we have in historical context. So we've had uh, Bonson wrote a book actually, we'll start with Rush ju he. 73 wrote a book called "The Institutes of Biblical Law," in which he outlined the position Jeff talked about just while well ago. Then in uh, around oh, I believe it was 74 or 70 maybe it was 72 that Bonson first came out, no, it would not in 72, I'll take it back, go check the dates, this is what scholars really should do, is go check the date before you talk about it, anyway, Bonson comes out with Theonomy and Christian Ethics, outlining, I'm sorry? Would have been when he did his master's thesis, okay, but it was published as a book in 72 then, okay, then it was was reprinted, then they put out a second edition, okay, And critics didn't like this book. In fact, a lot of people didn't like it because it was so detailed and so thorough and so amazing that it upset a lot of people. Uh, There's a lot of problems. I could tell you the whole history of it. It would be a lot of fun. But I just want to concentrate on that book because uh, some people didn't like it because it was too technical. I mean, it was a master's thesis after all. So he wrote a popular version of it uh, answering a book that Rush Juney had written back in 19—hold on, 19— 68, I believe, is when "By What Standard?" or yeah, "By What Standard?" came out. Bonson answered that question in a popular-level book entitled "By This Standard," outlining the theonomic position that you just heard Jeff give. Critics didn't like that book either, and we had so many critics in the 1970s and early 80s, and going on through the whole 1980s that uh, Bonson began a series of newsletters responding to all the critics over and over and over again, reams and reams of critics coming out of everywhere, every corner of the Christian universe. And so he so- sat down and wrote a, uh, put all those newsletters together in a book that was titled, No Other Standard. And the one thing he could never get, hardly, was anyone to face off in a debate with him. Nobody wanted to be held directly accountable for the things they were saying about us, especially after he published that second book. And uh, of course, then his health failed and he died in 1994. And then again, for some reason, Theonomy makes it back onto the radar of several other Christian groups that had never really heard much about us before. Uh, The story Jeff told you earlier about uh, his podcast and J.D. Hall's podcast. And pretty soon, the, the critiques came out again except there was something funny about them. It seems like we had heard them before. It seems like all the silly, crazy things people accused us of before were coming up again. And all of the things that uh, people said in criticism of us were being said again. All the things that were fallacious back then in the 1970s were being said again. It was like this huge void had been, it it was like a dispensational gap is what it was like, (laughs) had happened and they just jumped over all the history of that and and started hitting us again and well uh, uh, that was how I responded to it and that's why I wanted to do a talk tonight a little bit going through what Bonson went through when he had published that and in response to his critics and things of that nature and titled it Still No Other Standard. Our critics still don't have a cogent response and uh, there will be some actual backstory to that too uh, if I can get the time to say it. Uh, before I could proceed, though, I wanted to make a couple of comments about Jeff's talk. First of all, I wanted to correct uh, an error. I told Jeff I was going to do this, so it's, it's tongue-in-cheek. Um, Psalm ten has got to be my favorite Bible passage of all. It's not just one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament. It is the most quoted verse in the New Testament By a factor of about three, do you know what number two is? Love your neighbor as yourself. Even more important, see, I I, I do a whole talk on this, and even more important, uh, I, I, I do a whole talk on this, and I title it, not the Apostle's Favorite Bible Passage, but God's Favorite Bible Passage. It was all through the New Testament, God's quoting himself and putting that in context through the Holy Spirit. What does this really mean? How does this apply? And the verse he quotes the most of himself is, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies enemies thy footstool. And that verse is referenced, quoted directly, quoted in part, or referenced, I believe the number is around 23 times in the New Testament. Love thy neighbor as thyself is the second most quoted verse, and it shows up seven times. So you can see how powerful and how central that image is and its fulfillment is. And I just wanted to add that on there just to piggyback on what he was saying, just to really emphasize how powerful the point that really, really is. It's God's favorite Bible passage, and for that reason, it's mine, too. Secondly, this whole thing about Christmas, I've got to say, Jeff loves Christmas, and so do I. And I'm not going to start that debate here, but I just wanted to say I assure you that when he says that, I can vouch for you that he loves Christmas. Because we came to his house this morning at 8 o'clock and woke him up out of bed and he answered the door in his pajamas, squinting through one eye, why are you waking me up this early? And his pajamas were Christmas pajamas. So there you go. I'm not an evidentialist, but there's the proof. I want to make some comments and I've got a lot of material I want to go through in this regard. And if I don't get it all to you, hopefully I'll get it up in a form where you can at least read it later. And, of course, the, the way to read it later would be simply to go read Bonson's books. Because when I said normally I give new material in a talk, I'm doing just the opposite tonight. I'm not telling you anything that hasn't been said already 30 years ago. 40 years ago in some cases. And all the time in between then. The books have been sitting there and our critics keep saying the most insane things about us, and they haven't read the books. Now one of the things I hope comes out of this is I listened to to, uh, Jordan on uh, the dividing line today with with, uh, Dr. White, and I heard a little bit more reserved Jordan than I heard two months ago or three months ago or whatever it was on his podcasts. Much more cavalier back then, many more fallacies. Now that he's actually read some Bonson in the interim, his Criticisms aren't quite the same. I hope, I don't know what's going to come out in the debate, but either way I consider it a victory. A small victory maybe, but a victory. If he spouts off the nonsense, I'll be able to cut that off at the knees, easily. If he comes up and shows a more refined view, I can say, well, look how much different you sound now that you've actually read what we said. See how that changes things. Anyway, I don't want to make too big a point of that, and I'm not, certainly not trying to gloat in any way, shape, or form but it does make a difference when you actually read the people you're criticizing. Now, I'm a scholar. I'm a PhD. I've been peer-reviewed, published journals. I've written the books. I've hung out with guys who are many, many times smarter than I am and much more accomplished in the scholarly world. And I do know that if you, in the secular academic world, if you tried some of the tactics that have been used against us, your career would be over. You would be a laughingstock, stock. Your, your contract would not be renewed. And yet Christians do this to each other in purported Christian scholarship. Now, what am I talking about? One of the things that that comes against us when is this little bit of a phrase that's pulled out of Bonson's work, and it is the abiding validity of the law in. Finish the phrase. Anybody? Exhaustive Exhaustive detail well, that means you guys want us to start sacrificing animals again and reinstate circumcision and all of these things and the entire, every jot and tittle, everything has to go. The exhaustive detail, Bonson's a madman. And that is not what he meant. In fact, that that phrase really only shows up as a chapter title. And that's what they criticize. They don't read the actual chapter. So what I've done here is I took Bonson's book and I started with page one. In fact, before page one. This is the preface from the first edition. Are we talking about every little detail of the law must be applied one to one? Or are we talking about God's law in general? This is the preface to the first edition. Ready? Not only that, this is the first page of the preface to the first edition. I have not attempted to offer a commentary on the particulars of God's law as found in the Bible. While such a discussion of the specific commandments of God would follow naturally upon the conclusion of this study, it is not the primary purpose of the study itself. Instead I aim to demonstrate from Scripture that we have an ethical obligation to keep all of God's law. What does that say? I'm not dealing with particulars right now, I'm talking talking about a general obligation we have Toward God's law in general. And you're going to hear this theme recur. If Christians do not first realize their obligation and privilege to keep the law of God in its entirety, they will not proceed to implement such obedience by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in their own lives as well as the lives of their neighbors. Now, two comments follow from the foregoing observations. First, the reader is cautioned. Cautioned! Neon sign flashing, stop and think, not to mistake what is taught herein with whatever distortions or abuses of the theonomic principle might have been unearthed in the history of the church, okay? Don't confuse this with historical studies, okay? Just because I talk about I want to impose the law of God does not mean I'm lining up with some other group out there that says the same thing and wants to bomb abortion clinics, Okay, caution, read the actual stuff I'm saying before you make associations like that. He goes on. Second, the present study, this is back to the point about details, the present study leaves a great deal to be explored and discussed in Christian ethics, as well as extensive room for disagreement in the area of exegeting, understanding, and applying God's law in specific situations. Two people can submit to the exhaustive theonomic principle in Christian ethics while disagreeing on a particular moral question, for example, whether a certain biblical ma- command is ceremonial or moral, whether lying is ever condoned by God, etc. Thus, agreement with the thesis of this book is not contingent upon the agreement uh, upon agree- agreement in every particular moral issue or specific interpretation of a scriptural text. Details. Not extended. And what that means is that you can't go out and find somebody else in church history that you don't like who exegetes a passage in a certain way that is maybe not right or is, or, or is twisted or whatever and say, well, that guy talks about God's law and Bonson's talking about the exhaustive details of God's law. So that must mean all theonomists want to stone children to death or something of that nature. No, Bonson is saying, I'm not talking about any of that right now. This big, fat, six to seven hundred page book is not about those details. We need to talk about them. We'll talk about them later. But this is about the general obligation to keep God's law in general. Second, from that, it follows that even as we begin to exegete those points, there's going to be disagreement. Okay? Disagreement should be expected. And, to a large extent, it's Okay? Now think about that for a moment. First of all, one reason there's going to be disagreement is because the church hasn't been teaching this stuff for 200 years or 300 years or in some cases more than that. The theologians who should have been doing all this work, the hard work, have been off limiting the vision of God's Word to a very, very small thing, especially in American history. And so the tough work has not been done. Well, what happens when when you have a a problem like that it not only it's not only a gap in the theological literature it creates a generation of people who have no connection whatsoever with a world governed by biblical law and then you have another generation and then you have a generation that starts sending the children to public schools and then public schools become the norm and the next thing you know you're so far removed from this and all the questions that this raised and all the answers that, this, that biblical law would uh, satisfy have all been replaced by humanistic visions and values when it comes to things like civil justice, business ethics, law, courtroom procedure, a whole range of issues. And we're so out of touch with it that the first person that even says, we need to apply biblical law, they start calling you Muslims. And Sharia, comparisons to the Sharia come out. Well, it's not, it's not our fault because we're actually going back and asking the questions and struggling with these concepts that now seem foreign. It's your fault for not preaching it for 300 years. It's your dad's fault and your grandma's fault and everybody before them's fault that got away from it and let all this mess happen to begin with. And now we have to come back to the text totally without any background whatsoever and try to exegete it afresh. And you get a little bit of help from some theologians in history who did commentaries. You get little glimpses of how they dealt with it. But uh, you know what you're what you're really really dealing with is the scores of theologians that have been trained in modern issue modern ways of dealing with those things, and want to shut you down for even bringing up the question. So, Bonson, all he did was say we need to look at God's law in exhaustive detail. We need to consider the general applicability of it. And then then we need to get to the hard work of going through it verse by verse. And that was opening a can of worms. And the worms came out and they squirmed. But there will be disagreement. There is disagreement. Rush Duny disagreed with North on things. North disagreed with Jordan on things. I disagree with Rush Duny on things. I disagree with... Jeff, on baptism, does that mean we need to throw sacramentology out the window? Well, no. Disagreement is to be expected, especially when it's something that's been neglected by the church for many, many years. So Bonson then proceeds. In the same preface, I'm sorry, I'm I'm jumping ahead. I actually, uh... okay, so now, that's my point. All of that was in the preface to the first edition of the book. Any critic who was interested in the truth could have read those two pages and saved us all a whole lot of headaches. Now granted, I wouldn't have got to travel to Arizona and meet all these fine people and have such a great time, (laughs) but it would have saved a lot of headaches, would have saved a lot of court trials of people trying to get theonomists kicked out of ministry positions and all kinds of things like that. Nevertheless, the criticisms continued. And so Bonson, when he published the second edition of the book, uh, came back and wrote a, a second preface, which authors usually do, especially ones that like to write a lot. And he went through some of these things, and it was almost repeating in an expanded form what he had already said. And he has a section called An Analysis of the Position. He talks about what does theonomy mean. You heard Jeff discuss it earlier. It's a word that simply means God's law. Now, we don't play with that too much. We don't try to say, well, that means we all, if you if you believe in God's law, then we all believe the same thing. We're not quite that naive, and we're not trying to be deceptive with that. It's simply a way of saying, first of all, all of us, to some degree, have to accept this because it's God's law. And so, okay, can we, then we can at least talk about it. And, of course, that's when the wheels come off the bus and all the children get dumped out, but God's law. This, wo- this phrase, theonomy, has been used in connection with diverse ethical writers from Gisink, Van Til, uh, uh, Bart, who was a father of neo-orthodoxy, and Paul Tillich, who was an existentialist liberal theologian, who nevertheless used the word in his own context. Okay, now if everybody can use this word, from standard reform guys to presuppositionalists like Van Til to neo-Orthodox guys like Barth to liberals like Paul Tillich and then Greg Bonson. If that word can accommodate that broad of a range of people for different purposes obviously, it, it should, doesn't that speak to the broad degree of which we all believe in this to some level, some degree? I repeat myself. And so he goes on to say, nevertheless, common parlance, since his book was published, has come to uh, uh, conventionally label the distinctive theses of this book, the ethical perspective of Reconstructionism, as the, quote, theonomic position. That's fine. But you've got to realize there's a broader context to it to begin with. And Bonston wants to talk about that. So he goes on and says that he's going to give you an outline of his view of what that theonomic position is. But before offering an outline, I'm quoting, before offering an outline, we must be warned. Warning, caution, stop and think, another neon flashing sign. We must be warned that some people have been kept from an accurate analysis of theonomic ethics, sometimes by the author's manner of expression, sometimes because the order of discussion, especially qualifications of important points, is not what is expected by some readers he's taking a very gentle jab at his scholarly critics by the way that you start criticizing me before you finish reading the book and you don't like the fact that i don't have everything in the same order in which you would have put it or anticipated it and you start your criticism before you finish and realize that i have qualified this later and it means something entirely different than what you're saying i mean and he was very very uh, gentlemanly there but he's also poking at them a little bit. And sometimes because the book has simply not been read or read completely or read at a safe distance from distorting preconceptions and prejudices. For instance, a combination of such factors has misled some to maintain that theonomy because it often speaks, he's talking about the book theonomy, because it often speaks of our moral obligations I'm sorry, back up, because it often speaks of our obligation to the exhaustive details of God's law. Every jot and tittle cannot allow any change or advance over the Old Testament at any point. Even by God himself. And must follow without exception every single Old Testament precept strictly, literally, even the cultural trappings necessitate verbatim application and without qualification or modification. That's what some people said theonomy believes. That's what people today still say, critics today still say theonomy believes. And what is Bonson saying? No, no, we never said that from the beginning. You've taken that phrase, exhaustive detail, and you've made it mean something that I didn't mean. I qualified it. I said all kinds of things different. This is being misled by an erring critic. He goes on to say this. These false depictions cannot be justified from a careful reading of the book. There are no fewer than 70 pages that refer to the progress of Revelation and redemptive history, God's right to change the law, exceptions to general continuity, laws which are laid aside, or advances over the old covenant. Seventy pages worth of that kind of talk interspersed throughout the book, which tells you what about the critics? They didn't read the book. I did a little study earlier. Rush Juniors Institutes has been treated the same way. And we're always accused of being Judaizers and legalists and people who believe in mingling salvation by faith and works. And I think Jeff did a great job dispelling that. I did a little study. I did an electronic study of the book uh, of the Institute's. And I found, I believe there were something, I can't remember the exact number, there was like 124 individual instances throughout the book where the word regeneration is used. Or the word, or cognates of that word, variations of that word, or the word convert. And Rush Juni's point is constantly: none of this is none of this happens until conversion takes place. None of this happens until the Holy Spirit goes forth and regenerates men's hearts. That's what spurs it all. And he says this over and over and over in several different contexts, several different ways, 124 times throughout the book, which, when you do the math, comes out to about once every six pages. Okay? Which means, basically, I sh- it, you know, of course they're not all evenly spaced out, but on average I should be able to pick up that book and some, if read, read no more than six pages and find that, that concept in there. What does that tell you about our critics? they haven't even read six pages, or if they have, they've ignored what he said, whether by accident or, God forbid, on purpose, and sure enough, just to test my thesis, I picked up the book, and I started going from page one, and I think it was about page nine before I got to the first instance, so what does it tell you about our critics, Bonson's saying the same thing here. Bonson says, I mentioned, quote, radical differences, quote, legitimate and noteworthy discontinuities, laws which have, quote, become obsolete. What is, what is championed in the book is, quote, the presumption of moral continuity between the Testaments. It was clearly spelled out that, quote, if we were, are to submit to God's law, then we must submit to every bit of it as well as its own qualifications end quote, because, quote, only God has the authority and prerogative to discontinue the binding force of anything he has revealed. We should live by the Old Testament law, quote, except where expressly indicated otherwise. So he's dispelling this point, showing his critics haven't read his book at all, or at least not uh, too much of it. Furthermore, it should be perfectly plain to any student of scripture, theonomic or not, that God requires obedience to the underlying principles illustrated by Scripture's cultural expressions. The underlying principle, not the letter of literal detail. And they still try to pin that on us. I mean, especially people who have not waded through this debate hardly at all, almost the very first thing they say is, does that mean I need to put a railing on my roof? And I actually, I know Greg's dispelling that myth here, I'll just go ahead and read it and I'll come back to that point. Theonomy plainly observed, quote, The case law illustrates the application or qualification of the principle laid down in the general commandment. And it is, quote, The underlying principle of which the case law was a particular illustration which has abiding ethical validity. So he's saying all the things they're accusing us of. He's saying the opposite of, of, up front. And he's showing them don't make this mistake when reading my book and responding to it and they either haven't read it or have read it and chosen to ignore it somehow for some reason he goes on to elucidate we are not bound to the cultural details of flying axe heads and rooftop railings but to the principles about unpremeditated homicide and safety precautions now that's where I would I know he was just dispelling a rumor in passing I would actually disagree with him there are instances in, in all over our society where we have flat rooftops and guess what the government does you ever heard of a group called OSHA anybody any business owners I'm sure you've heard of OSHA occupational safety and health administration they require you to have a railing 42 inches high all around where anybody's going to be set, setting foot that could fall and get hurt Now. I, I, God's law is teaching a slightly different principle. He's not saying set up a government bureaucracy and impose this on everybody. That's not how you take care of it in biblical law. But the principle is the same. I mean, I've, I've been in many places where I actually saw houses that do have a flat part, like over a garage or something, and it's used as a deck. If you've got a deck on your house, you're going to put a railing on it. If you have a deck on your house and you don't have a railing off and somebody falls and gets hurt, guess who's liable? Okay? So... We are liable to the cultural details where they fit the same conditions we have. And so I would make that point not to try to, you know, improve upon Bonson or anything like that. Like I said, he was speaking in passing. But it is something we need to think about. And that type of thinking is going to come out in the debate tomorrow. It is going to be, I hope, well, it will be because I get to force the issue, a question over what does the general equity of the law mean? Does that mean we pull it out of its civil context out of the Old Testament and throw it into the spiritual realm? That's what the general equity is, and that's why we don't have to follow the civil laws anymore. Well, actually, that's not quite true. That's not quite true, and we'll get to that when the time comes. Bonson uh, finishes his thought here. Those who have ridiculed the theonomic position for requiring observance to ancient cultural details should give responsible reflection to their ill-conceived criticism. Such disdain would equally ridicule New Testament ethical directives with their cultural trappings as though go and do thou likewise at the end of the story of the Good Samaritan literally obligates us to pour oil and wine on the wounds of half-dead victims of robbery on the Jericho Road today, setting them on donkeys, not in cars, and paying for their stay at roadside inns with literal denarii ancient Roman coins. Critical ridicule, which is blind to this feature of the biblical interpretation is general. in general, is too superficial and inconsistent to warrant serious attention. What's he saying about his critics? I'll let you decide. He tells an anecdote. A Reformed seminary professor once told me that what bothered him about the book Theonomy was its repeated stress on obeying, quote, every jot and tittle of the Old Testament. His complaint was ultimately then with the language Jesus chose to use in teaching his attitude toward the law in Matthew five eighteen. Even though Jesus would qualify it elsewhere, Christ used a categorical declaration expecting it to be our operating assumption. Christians can legitimately echo that teaching by saying the law has abiding validity in exhaustive detail, likewise acknowledging that the qualifications are given elsewhere in Scripture, and it is obligatory upon any serious thinker or student of Scripture to go and follow up with that. Now, I don't know what, I have no idea what's difficult about that. You don't need a Ph.D. to figure that out. You don't need a Ph.D. to figure out things like, if I'm going to publicly represent somebody else's position for the purpose of critique, I probably need to read the book first. You don't i got a friend sitting down here who's a nuclear scientist. And you don't need to be a nuclear scientist. I have another friend in the back who's a rocket scientist. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure these things out. It's basic brotherly charity to begin with to do that. It's basic responsibility. The question is, why have our critics consistently done the opposite for 40 years? And why is it resurrecting in that uh, same type of expression today? What does it come down to? I'm skipping quite a bit. But what does it come down to? The New Testament explicitly confirms the inference that the moral standards apply in the civil realm today, I'm paraphrasing, by making magistrates avengers of wrath on evildoers. You all know Romans 13. By making it a lawful use of God's law to restrain the publicly unruly, First Timothy 1, 8 through 10. And saying that in this law, quote, every transgression and disobedience received its just recompense of reward. Hebrews 2.2. What part of that law is no longer just? What part of that law no longer binds the the, the civil magistrate today in its moral force? What part of that law quoted by Timothy, and I'm not going to go into that tonight, I'll go into it tomorrow, uh, does no longer apply to evildoers? And if you read that list, it's murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, kidnappers, things like that. What part of that no longer applies? Well, if Paul's quoting the case law to make his play, then then why do we get to go back to the case law ourselves and and pick and choose which ones we want? And why do we get to go to the penal sanctions that are attached to those case laws and say, well, this would be a good idea, but that wouldn't? You can, when you start getting it down to that level, you can see why, as Jeff discussed earlier, its it really is still a question of theonomy or autonomy. Because in the end, either God's going to make that decision for you and you're going to obey it, or you're going to make that decision by your own standard and obey that. So if it was by this standard... In the 1970s and 80s, it was no other standard in 1991, and it's still no other standard but theonomy. And yes, 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 I know we've got to get down to the nitty-gritty details. I wish my critics would shut up about the other parts so that we could do that together. Anyway. Now you you may say you may think saying shut up is not very kind but I have a sermon from a Puritan preaching in 1742 to the Massachusetts State Assembly and the judges and the governor who used the phrase shut up so I've got the difference is he, he, he applied it in a way that no other preacher in history has ever done he applied it to himself saying it was time for him to shut up. Anyway, That was not about you, Jeff, I promise. <laughs> this is the quote that I really, really love, and this is from the introduction to the book. Now you, you got to understand books, especially scholarly books, acknowledgements, forward, preface to the first edition, preface to the second edition. You've got 40 pages of material up front before you get to the introduction. <laughs> and we love that. We love those details. And we all should. In the introduction to the book, where he's actually introducing the thesis of the abiding validity of the law in exhaustive detail, he surveys the entirety of Reformed thought in history as to how this question has come about and why is it a question. And what have all the modern reform guys said about it? And what have other scholars said about it? And he shows how each one of them fails to deal with the issue properly. And so there's a gap in the academic literature which he's trying to fill. And he has a section near the end of that introduction called Preliminary Survey of the Solution. And the first, few, uh, first sentence of that says this. Okay, this is his overview of what he's trying to accomplish. Now you've... If you, you, you listen to this, and you listen for the cues. Is he teaching that we have to oppose every single detail of the law without any change whatsoever? In the pages that follow, my concern will be to show from God's word that the Christian is obligated to keep the whole law of God as a pattern of sanctification and that this law is to be enforced by the civil magistrate. Where and how the stipulations of God so designate. Did you hear that? How does it apply to the civil magistrate? It applies in the way that God stipulates, which means that over time, God changes some things. God qualifies things. Things that did happen in ancient Israel don't apply anymore today. And those distinctions are all there. And he's acknowledging them up front multiple times. So... I'm laboring the point to show you that just on this one issue, the abiding validity of the law in exhaustive detail, how Bonson went out of his way to try to prevent that critique, and when it came up, he responded into it a way to try to... It's like that old game. It keeps coming up and up. It's like that game where you whack the mole, and no matter how fast you go, it keeps going faster, and you can't keep up with it, and finally you've lost 25 cents. Except in our case, we've lost 300 years. And we continue to lose that because people won't get on board with that basic idea. And I'm going to elaborate more on this tomorrow of what I mean by that. So, lots of good stuff in here. There's one more uh, couple paragraphs here I want to read. And I'm going to actually try to cut this talk short to, to hope, in hopes of getting us somewhere back on schedule. We are still doing the Q&A, correct? Yes. Okay. All right. misrepresentation by critics title of this section again this is in the preface to the second edition often enough critics of the theonomic position have unfairly attributed to it claims that are quite contrary to what it teaches or which do not logically follow from what the ten propositions outlined above you'll have to go read those for yourself such inaccurate representations may make criticism easier but simultaneously make it irrelevant since it misses the intended target. A case in point are theonomic beliefs about the nature, coming, and effects of God's kingdom, something touched upon in over 90 references in the book of Theonomy. These pages indicate that theonomists reject any combination of grace and self-effort works in salvation, finding even the the dynamics for sanctification in the Holy Spirit's internal work. You hear that? What has to happen before any of this law stuff happens? Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God as an international community of faith comes by the Spirit's gracious power working through evangelistic preaching and Christian nurture. Work salvation, right? Now, As converts strive to grow in holiness, they desire to keep God's commandments. Recognizing the literary, logical, and hermeneutical differences between laws of a summary nature, moral laws, and those of an explanatory and illustrative nature, judicial, in that process. Because they want to obey God in all areas of life, home, church, and even state, Christians will seek to persuade their civil leaders to honor the principles of those laws from God and only those which are relevant to the power of the sword in Scripture. That's his realm. They realize this is what ought to take place, whether or not they have such reform efforts will see success in the long run. And of course, post-millennialists do. And actually what he's saying here is that you don't have to be post-mill to be a theonomist. And in fact, there weren't. In fact, back in the day when Tommy Ice and Dave Hunt were debating Gary North and uh, Gary DeMar over these very issues, 1986, I believe. Uh, there was actually a dispensationalist in Tommy Ice's own church who was a theonomist and wrote a book about it. I believe his last name was Schnicker. I don't, don't quote me on that, but you can look it up. There are all mills. Bonson's saying the question of should the law apply is separate from do you think it is going to apply and when in history. Logically, those are not connected, except, in of course, in my view, through other scriptures, but that's a different discussion. So Bonson lays out all of this qualification here. He's setting the stage to say, look, don't criticize us that way. We don't hold those beliefs. And so after dealing with this between the first and second editions, here's how he sums up how he's been treated and why he's saying this. He says, therefore, it is mean, illogical, and inexcusable propaganda for some theonomic critics to dismiss it as allegedly, one, Judaizing the New Testament, two, making the law our dynamic of sanctification. 3. Denying any distinction between moral and judicial laws. 4. Taking the civil use of God's law as the way of bringing in His kingdom. 5. Wishing to oppose the kingdom by the sword. 6. Asking the state to enforce all the Mosaic laws and curb all outward evil. 7. Shifting emphasis from personal piety evangelism, and the church so as to stress instead the cultural mandate, politics, and capital punishment. Eight, demanding post-millennial eschatology, or nine, viewing America as God's chosen nation. Th- three more major repre- misrepresentations dealing with the status of Old Covenant Israel deserve special mention. Some claim, ten, that the theonomists seek to establish a church state today. Others allege the opposite. Eleven, that theonomy says the old covenant form of the kingdom has not changed, wherein separation of the religious cult strictly equated with the new covenant church from the state, which was no different from the civil rule in any other nation, was total and rigid, making Israel's church-state relationship identical to the relationship called for today. And finally, it has been pretended, by the way, that, that latter view is very close to an Anabaptist view, in which, since the church is totally separated, the state can do what it wants. But Anyway, I won't elaborate on that too much. Finally, it has been pretended, 12, that theonomy overlooks or logically denies the typological character of the Old Covenant economy as a special redemptive historical prototype of Christ's coming kingdom. Once again, however, a multitude of references from theonomy disprove such false reports, and he goes on to elucidate those. What was he saying? He was dispelling all these rumors that he had gone out of his way to begin with to dispel, and some that, that he didn't, but didn't need to be made anyway. And in the process, not only do the critics say that we teach the opposite of what we teach half the time, sometimes the critics are saying opposite things about us that don't even correlate with each other. You know, it's kind of funny, a lot of this, the, the online debates, for example, on social media that I've seen, they always say, well, you, th- you theonomists can't even agree with each other. And, and my point is, well, are you trying to say, therefore, we're all wrong? You know, that's the implication. They don't say that. It's obviously a fallacy. And to which the obvious retort is, you guys can't even critique us from the same page. Your guys are all against each other. And the truth is, if that's how we do theology, then let's just throw out the entirety of church history. And let's go have a cigar. Yeah. Let's have a cigar anyway. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But uh, that's not how you do theology. Theology starts with exegesis. It doesn't start with confessions and, and councils. I think that may actually come up tomorrow as well. Anybody got any idea how much time I have left, if any or none, or? Yeah. Uh, see, I bragged to the guy that I could do that myself, and he, he said, all right, so I won't help you, but now he's helping me. Praise the Lord. Oh, I've got so much more stuff to go over here. I wish I had time to fill you in. Who speaks for theonomy? Bronson's got a great position. I'm switching books now to no other standard. I was working my way up to still no other standard, but I think you've got that point by now. Uh, so much great stuff in here. And what I want to do is just, now that you've heard everything you've heard, from Bonson, and I'm going to put him to the side here. Now that you've heard everything you've heard from Bonson on the fallacies, and I've got five minutes left, let's just look at a couple of the things Jordan Hall said in laying the pr- groundwork for this debate. I love the phrase. These are all, by the way, these are my transcripts of his podcast when he critiqued us, what started this whole debate My only initial reason for wanting to debate was to get him in a place where I could hold him accountable for the things he said here. And it's uh, turned into this better event. I think it's still going to be helpful. I've read every single book that there is on theonomy, which is not much. There's not very, very many books on it because it's such a strange, peculiar belief, and it's actually not that old. How many of you have followed theonomy for more than a few years? Hey, yeah, I got some old-timers in here, actually, the, some of the, some of the, the early guys. Uh, not that many books on it, huh? I think I counted between Rush Jr. and North alone there were about 100 when you include all the commentaries. And uh, so if you add to that, the Gary DeMar, uh, who's written, I think, 27 books in his lifetime or so, uh, Kenneth Gentry, people who were at one time more overtly theonomic like George Grant, James Jordan, make a long list of these names. They're all on GaryNorseFreeBooks.com. You can go read most of these books for free, download them for free. I mean, it's going to be a, a couple hundred books at least. And then on top of that, you can throw my paltry 14. So uh, I, I'd be very, very impressed if he actually read all that. I wish he would. I don't want to go through all of this, but here's a position that that really got me. And it was this section that uh, uh, reminded me of all that stuff that I heard from those old critics all over again. The position was, was brought up, is it the case that the theonomist really wants to start changing the law instead of changing the heart? In other words, all we care about is political action. We don't care about the gospel. We don't care about regeneration. Of course, you would know, that's nonsense by now. And J.D.'s response to that was, quote, well, that is a fair assessment because that is exactly what I think. And that is what I've picked up from the theonomists. That's the goal. And they can say all they want, no, no, no. They want a people to hear the gospel And then we'll all together decide it's a good thing to start killing children. We don't want to start killing children now and then lead people to Jesus. We want to lead people to Jesus. We can all come together, look at the scriptures, say let's institute God's laws, not our laws. And so I think it's a good idea to start killing little Johnny who disobeyed his mother. Now, first of all, you have no idea what an insult that is to God's law. If that's supposed to be a scare tactic that we resurrect this law about the stoning of rebellious sons which is an entirely different matter than the way people popularly portray it. He's not just exposing his ignorance about the history of theonomy and all we've written. He's exposing his ignorance about what the law itself means and really what it says. It means you didn't actually go read Deuteronomy before you started portraying it like this and when you're doing it you're slapping God in the face. I mean, irrespective of the question of does this apply today, even if, even if we agreed that law doesn't apply today, it did apply for 1,200 years of human history, and God expected it to be enforced. And you know what I think happened? When Israel, Israel began to reject God as their ruler, and they began to get involved in syncretism with the other nations around them and going a-whoring after strange gods and all the stuff they did... To the point where they were sacrificing their children to the public school, I mean to Molech. (laughs) Same thing. You know what I think they were saying? Who in the world would enforce that law? Who would enforce that law? Meanwhile, society is burning down around them, and they're doing things ten times more egregious than God ever called them to do, which was just to begin with. And I guarantee you there were people talking about how barbarous and savage those civil penalties were. Executing people for adultery. I don't think it's a problem of where we're at in history. I think it's a problem of the human heart. One more, and I'll wrap up. Oh, I'd love this. Yeah. Playing off that same concept, two more. Playing off that same concept, he compares us to cult members who try to present ourselves as kind, loving, brotherly Christians. We're just like you. But we hide from you our real intent. Quote, you know how when cultists come to your door, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons and then I'm paraphrasing. Pretend that they're Christians just like you. Theonomists are like that when they say it begins with families and moves gradually. We want to institute a quote spiritual utopia. We want to talk about the spiritual utopia and then quote then suddenly start killing people through cruel and unusual punishment and stoning children. But then he also realizes he had read a little bit of Bonson. Bonson didn't advocate stoning, so, quote, maybe we won't stone them, we'll just lethally inject our 10-year-olds when they're disrespectful or insolent to our parents. You lost me somewhere. You lost me at stoning children. Okay, hopefully we'll get to talk about what that law actually means tomorrow. But then right after saying that, he says, So, we need to discuss what's the proper use of God's law. And I listened to that and I thought, You think? Why didn't you ask that question before you started all of this? Why didn't you come to me or Gary or any one of us and say, can we talk about this? What do you, you, you actually say in here? What would you do with that? What does it mean? And, of course, he didn't. He got to the end of his first of two or three podcasts, and that was when he decided to say, with the irony completely lost on himself, that we should study God's law. Now, we, we theonomists, we want to capture the culture, change the laws and start killing people and not really be involved with the gospel. And he says that's not the way to do it. Well, I agree. <laughs> but in order to straighten this out, he quotes from John MacArthur. I don't have the reference for the sermon, but this was in the in the podcast. Quote: Reform is no answer for a culture like ours. Redemption is what's needed. And that occurs at the individual, not societal level. The church needs to get back to the real task to which we're called, evangelizing the lost. Only when multitudes of individuals in our society turn to Christ will society itself experience any significant transformation. And I had to make a footnote at this point, guys. All of, I summoned all of my scholarly ability and all of my training And I put a footnote right here in my transcript that says, (laughs) L-O-L! Exclamation point! Go back and read page 30 of the second preface, and that's exactly what Bonson says from day one. And the truth is, the only way they can ignore that is by calling us liars implicitly. You say that, but you don't really mean it. Well, well. let me close with a quotation from a friend of mine who said something very similar, if I can find it. And uh, this is a few paragraphs, so excuse my actual using of all my time when the revival truly comes the minister and the congregation and the church will receive good by it. but it does not end there The members of the church grow more solemn, more serious family duties are better attended to The home circle is brought under better culture. Hear that? Better culture. Those who could not spare time for family prayer find they can do so now. Those who had no opportunity for teaching their children now dare not go a day without doing it, for they hear that there are children converted in the Sunday school. There are twice as many in the Sunday school now as there used to be in What is wonderful, the little children meet together and pray, their little hearts are touched, and many of them show signs of a work of grace begun. And fathers and mothers think they must try what they can do for their families. If God is blessing the little children, why should he not bless theirs? But bless me to God. It doesn't end there. The revival of the church then touches the rest of society. Men who do not come forward and profess religion are more punctual in attending the means of grace. Men that used to swear give it up. They find it's not suitable for the times. Men that profaned the Sabbath and that despised God find it will not do. They give it all up. Times get changed. You hear that? Times get changed. Eras. Nations. Morality prevails. The lower ranks are affected. They buy a sermon where they used to buy some penny tract of nonsense. The higher orders are also touched. They too are brought to hear the word. Her ladyship and her carriage, who never would have thought of going to some mean place as a conventicle, does not now care where she goes as long as she is blessed. She wants to hear the truth. And the drayman, the man who drives the carriage, pulls his horses up beside the other of her ladyship's pair of greys, and they both go in and bend together before the throne of sovereign grace. All classes are affected. Even the senate feels it. The statesman himself is surprised at it and wonders what all these things mean. Even the monarch on the throne feels she has become something, has become the monarch of a better people than she knew before, and that God is doing something in her realms past all her thought. That a great king is swaying a better scepter and exerting a better influence than even her excellent example. Nor does it even end there. Heaven is filled. One by one the converts die and it gets fuller. The harps of heaven are louder. The songs of angels are inspired with new melody. For they rejoice to see the sons of men prostrate before the throne. The universe is made glad. It is God's own summer. It is the universal spring. The time of singing birds has come. The voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Oh, that God might send us such a great revival of religion as this. Charles Spurgeon, 1858. That's what John MacArthur was saying. That's what Charles Spurgeon was saying. And every theonomist in the world would agree with that assessment. That's how it's done. And when our critics ever desire to have an honest conversation about it, that's right where I'll start. This is what Spurgeon believed. This is how revival affects society. But guess what? The Senate's going to listen up, too. And they're going to be asking questions about justice. And we're going to talk about more of those questions in the kingdom of God tomorrow. Thank you all.